Today's broadcast was originally recorded on March 22, 2023. Janet Protasiewicz set violent criminals free. Wisconsin seniors depend on Social Security, but extremist Dan Kelly doesn't care about them. Tell Judge Protasiewicz, stop protecting criminals. Kelly wrote that Social Security was similar to slavery. Dan Kelly, an extremist who doesn't care about us. Wow. Getting kind of hot up there in Wisconsin. Is there an election going on or something? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Huh. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast that's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA and a whole bunch of other fine affiliates, both terrestrial and internet, that we've got so much show today I do not even have time to mention as we... Blanket Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Okay, as we go to air today, uh, still no indictments for Donald Trump in either New York or Georgia or at the federal level, despite Trump's promise that he was going to be arrested days ago now in the New York case. I don't know what's going on, Desi Doyen. I'm, I'm beginning to think that maybe I cannot trust what Donald Trump don't, says. Yeah, don't count on him anymore. Mm. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Just in any just. event, uh, in fact, various reports are suggesting that Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg may still wish to bring Yet another witness before his grand jury, uh, his criminal grand jury, before they vote on whether to bring charges against the former president or not. Uh, now, that might seem to otherwise give us some much needed time today to discuss something else that's actually going on where there is no speculation needed right now. And that's a critical state Supreme Court election in Wisconsin where Liberals may actually take control of the majority on the high court for the first time in 15 years as of the upcoming Election Day on April 4. And why is that important to the rest of the country? Well, our friend, progressive journalist, Wisconsin native, Bernie Sanders co-author of late, John Nichols, will be here momentarily to explain that and no doubt share his thoughts on this Uh, bizarre former presidential indictment watch moment in history that we're all going through, Desi Doyle? Yes, this bizarre limbo that we're all in. Isn't it fun? (laughs) Uh, Of course, I, I describe that as a momentary seeming pause in the uh, in the news out of the New York case, because though we've got John standing by to join us momentarily to discuss a bunch of stuff. So I want to keep this brief, get as much time as we can with him. There was a pretty huge development literally overnight, not in the New York case, but in the federal criminal probe of Donald Trump by special counsel Jack Smith in the case of the thousands of pages of classified documents, many of them highly classified, that Trump stole from the White House and took with him to Mar-a-Lago upon leaving office. And uh, we also now know that in that case, Lordy, there are tapes. 
On Tuesday night, ABC News first broke the news that prosecutors in Jack Smith's special counsel's office presented compelling preliminary evidence last week that former President Donald Trump knowingly and deliberately misled his own attorneys about his retention of classified materials after leaving office. That is from a finding from a former top federal judge on Friday in a sealed ruling, according to sources who described its contents to ABC News. U.S. Judge Beryl Howell, whose term as the D.C. District Court uh, Court's chief judge, actually ended on Friday. She wrote that prosecutors, according to these sources, prosecutors in Jack Smith's office had made a, quote, prima facie showing that the former president had committed criminal violations and that attorney client privileges invoked by two of his lawyers could therefore be pierced. Attorney client privilege to prevent lawyers from having to testify against their own clients is pretty sacrosanct in this country unless conversations by a client with their attorney was in furtherance of committing yet another crime, as does appear to be the case here, according to Howell's ruling last week. That means that uh, two of Trump's attorneys on the stolen documents case, most notably uh, for the moment Evan Corcoran, may no longer be able to uh, invoke the attorney-client privilege because the so-called crime fraud exception to that privilege has now been invoked by the federal judge requiring Corcoran himself to testify to Jack Smith's grand jury. In her sealed filing, Judge Howell ordered Corcoran, an attorney for Trump, to comply with a grand jury subpoena for testimony on six separate lines of inquiry over which he had previously asserted attorney-client privilege. So he had been called to the grand jury before but said, nope, can't respond, attorney-client privilege. Sources added that Howell also ordered Corcoran to hand over a number of records tied to what Howell described as Trump's alleged, quote, criminal scheme. Those records include handwritten notes, invoices, and, get this, transcriptions of, yes, personal audio recordings. Lordy, there are tapes. Judge Howell agreed with uh, prosecutors that they made a sufficient prima facie showing that Trump did commit crimes in his conversation with his attorney, specifically here with Corcoran, that now pierces the attorney-client privilege to avoid testimony. So, so much for that. Howell found that prosecutors showed sufficient evidence that Trump, quote, intentionally concealed the existence of additional classified documents from Corcoran, putting him in an unwitting position to deceive the government when uh, Corcoran had told them, you'll recall this document saying, that's it, we have done a thorough search of Mar-a-Lago, there are no, uh, no more classified documents here when he handed over about 38 of them to the federal government, only to uh, find later after the FBI search of the premises that, in fact, there were more than 100 other classified documents that were still there. If it turns out that uh, Trump did actually mislead, intentionally mislead his attorneys like Corcoran, mm -hmm. 
it may actually turn out to be to Corcoran's benefit if he recorded those conversations as his own self-protection. There but you we'll go. see. Yeah, we will see. It's unclear right now uh, which evidence that Howell actually reviewed under seal from both uh, the DOJ and Trump's attorneys that helped her arrive at her decision. All of this is under seal because it regards grand jury testimony that is ongoing. But here's where, but that's uh, interesting enough. Here's where it really really got nuts on Tuesday night as Florida attorney and Daily Coast writer, occasional broadcast guest uh, Keith Barber uh, first tipped me off uh, following yesterday's show as he explained at uh, Daily Coast, uh, quote, Trump then filed an appeal to Judge Howell's order compelling Corcoran to testify from last week. He filed an appeal with the D.C. Court of Appeal, and on Tuesday night, the D.C. Circuit intervened, technically staying Howell's order for the moment. However, they set a briefing schedule, as he described it, like I have never seen, requiring Team Trump to respond by midnight on Tuesday night. That was just hours after the appeals panel ruling saying, OK, we'll put the whole thing on hold. But if you want to appeal, we need your documents by tonight, hours from now, by midnight. At the same time, they ordered the Department of Justice to respond by 6 a.m. the next morning, Wednesday morning. Now, this set off a flurry on legal Twitter of attorneys sort of unanimously agreeing that they had never seen a calendar like that, giving the appellants just hours, hours to file their brief by midnight and then requiring the DJ, the DOJ essentially to work overnight to respond just hours later by 6 a.m. in turn. So what is the evidence here that this three-judge appeals court panel must have seen that set off a fuse like that. Keith Barber writes, uh, quote, My impression of this is they intend to deny Trump's appeal, but are providing an appearance of due process. He argued that they're also sending a strong message at the same time that the courts are fed up with Trump's stalling tactics and uh, that uh, they would probably make their ruling today. Former prosecutor David Doak tweeted in response to this story, uh, quote, three possibilities for this extreme timeline. One, the court is fed up with Trump's delay tactics, uh, adding that he doesn't think that's it. Two, there is an urgent issue of national security at stake. Hmm. Or three, this case of document hoarding has turned into potential espionage. Hmm. Yikes. Now, in response to cool things down, University of Texas professor Steve Vladek, he tweeted uh, back to Doak. Yes, it's very unusual for a court of appeals to set a briefing schedule, even on an emergency stay with deadlines at midnight and 6 a.m. One explanation, he notes, is that something strange is afoot. But another is that the panel is just trying to avoid interfering with the grand jury. He says if you want to minimize disruption to the grand jury while also ensuring that a challenge to forthcoming testimony lacks merit, well, this is one way to do that. An administrative stay with a crazy fast briefing schedule. So this may not be as extraordinary as many are assuming, said Vladek. Well, Doak responded uh, to say a possible, but midnight and 6 a.m., 
I'm not buying the torture of the special counsel staff here <laughs> to make nice to a grand jury. Hmm. And frankly, neither am I, to be frank. Something else seems to be going on here to cause a schedule like that, which n- nobody seems to have ever seen before. A midnight deadline and a 6 a.m. deadline for response? Really? Okay. Whatever it is, uh, unusual, to I say hope the least. I hope we'll eventually get to find out. Well, we don't... We have not yet found out what has caused all of this, but we have found out how this three-judge uh, appeals court panel has ruled. Here's what we know as of this hour as we go to air. The panel of three judges on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit issued their order Wednesday afternoon in response to all of this, directing the parties, quote, to comply with the district court's uh, order from last week to produce documents and ending an emergency hold, if brief, on uh, Judge Howell's ruling last week. When Corcoran was ordered to give the Justice Department notes, transcripts of recordings and invoices in his possession. Now, Again, we don't know what caused this insane schedule. And in fact, the appeal of the decision will continue, according to Washington Post, just before air, with briefs due in May. But without a hold on Howell's order, prosecutors can now review the evidence while Trump's legal team argues against its use. So they're letting them look at this evidence It's that important. It's that critical that they're allowing them to go ahead and work with it even while this appeal moves forward. And if I understand the reporting correctly here from various sources, as I say, just before airtime, Corcoran will be forced to testify to the grand jury. But of course, if he wishes, he can still invoke his Fifth Amendment privilege, if not the attorney client privilege, uh, in order to avoid incriminating himself. Uh, but not the attorney-client privilege to avoid either testimony or avoid turning over the evidence in question to prosecutors since the crime-fraud exception has now been invoked. It's possible the former president uh, can still go up to the Supreme Court, by the way, on this matter, though, uh, according to The Washington Post, it is not clear that he would have a much better chance of success there where the case would be before Chief Justice John Roberts. In the closed court arguments over Corcoran's testimony and evidence, they report lawyers for special counsel who is leading the Justice Department investigating in the documents case said there is evidence of a deliberate effort not to turn over all of the material that was covered by the subpoena for those classified documents in the first place. So to me, for the moment, What makes this so huge is not just that Trump's attorney must testify. We've seen that before in several of these other cases, nor that Trump appears to have committed a crime in his interactions with his own attorney. But that the appeals court thought something in this matter was so urgent They gave Team Trump just hours to file their argument by midnight and then required the special counsel to respond uh, to that argument. All of it sealed, by the way, by 6 a.m. What's up? 
sure, they could be trying to send a message to Team Trump that they're sick of all of these stalling tactics, but that seems pretty extreme, especially since it meant forcing, essentially forcing the uh, special counsel's office to stay up all night long after the uh, midnight response to the deadline. Uh, both of the teams, by the way, did get their material in on time. But, uh, boy, something else uh, extraordinary does at least seem to be going on in that Mar-a-Lago documents case. Wow, wow, wow. Nonetheless, we will consider this uh, close enough to a long enough pause <laughs> to cover something else of note today. We will cover it with John Nichols of The Nation magazine. That is straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like or even just a one-time-only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. Welcome back. The Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, we may, may have at least somewhat, somewhat of a pause of sorts in the uh, Trump action today, or at least what can be considered a pause given the extraordinary number of ongoing court cases and potential indictments seemingly coming to a head against the for corrupt former president. I want to make sure that we get a few minutes in here to discuss what is arguably one of the most important elections in the nation. Uh, even though it, coming up this year in just a few weeks, even though it is for control of just one single state's Supreme Court, uh, that we will also discuss the woes and legal battles of that disgraced former president with my guest joining me momentarily. But in the great state of Wisconsin on Tuesday night, in the only debate of the closely watched race that will determine ideological control of the Wisconsin Supreme Court at long last, liberal judge Janet Protasiewicz hammered her Republican opponent, Daniel Kelly, as a, quote, true threat to democracy, unquote, over his ties to a scheme to overturn the 2020 election in the critical Badger state. Judge Protasiewicz declared Kelly to be, quote, one of the most extreme partisan characters in the history of the state. During their only face-off in advance of the critical April 4 election that will result in either liberals for the first time in 15 years or so-called conservatives winning four to three control at the state's high court following the retirement of one of the court's conservative justices. 
The Wisconsin Supreme Court race is of huge importance to both liberals and conservatives, given the bevy of critical topics likely to come before the court in the coming months and years, both before and after, by the way, the 2024 presidential election in the battleground state. A win on April 4 for Kelly would mean that they retain conservative control of that court, while a win by Protosewitz would result in a liberal majority at the Wisconsin Supreme Court for the first time in a decade and a half. Unsurprisingly, then, the contest between the two has become exceedingly sharp and incredibly expensive. It's already the most expensive state Supreme Court race in U.S. history, with tens of millions being spent by and for the two campaigns. In one of several attacks the candidates lobbed at each other during Tuesday's one-hour debate, Protosewitz, a Milwaukee County Circuit judge, criticized Kelly, a former state Supreme Court justice, of having advised Republicans on their effort to overturn the 2020 presidential race in Wisconsin through the use of fake electors. Kelly's response to the 2020 election and the January 6th insurrection is one of many themes that her campaign, Protosewitz's campaign, has been using to brand Kelly as a radical Republican extremist in the theoretically nonpartisan race. Remember this, and this, and the false elector scheme. In Wisconsin, extremist Dan Kelly was the right-wing lawyer behind the scenes of it all. The bipartisan January 6th commission revealed Kelly advised Trump operatives as special counsel to overturn the will of the people and overthrow the election results. Kelly even went on tour promoting the big lie. On April 4th, vote like democracy depends on it, because it does. Last year, uh, in a deposition to the U.S. House Committee investigating the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol, former Wisconsin GOP chair Andrew Hitt said that he and former Justice Kelly had, quote, pretty extensive conversations about the fake electors scheme. And the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reported last month that the Republican Party at the state and national levels had paid Kelly $120,000 to advise them on, quote, election integrity issues. Kelly hit back against those accusations on Tuesday night by charging that Protosewitz was, quote, lying, and he denied any involvement in the matter, claiming that in his testimony, Hit, the uh, GOP chair, said that he held, quote, extensive conversations with his attorneys, plural, not just Kelly. Quote, his testimony was also that he had one conversation with me, 30 minutes in which he asked if I was in the loop on the alternate elector slate. I told him I wasn't because I wasn't. And that was the end of the matter, Kelly claimed on Tuesday. For his part, Kelly attacked Protosewitz over how prominently she had broadcast how she would side in high profile cases that might come before the high court. Quote, this is the problem that you have when you have a candidate who does nothing but talk about her personal politics, Kelly charged. She's already told each and every one of you how she will approach this. But of course, the Protosewitz camp charges there is little question about how Kelly would decide key issues, such as a critical case on the state's 1849 abortion ban, which is suddenly back in play after the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the corrupt far-right U.S. Supreme Court last year. 
Kelly has been endorsed, meanwhile, by three groups that oppose reproductive freedoms and has provided counsel to another Wisconsin group that opposes abortion rights. On Tuesday, Protosewitz insisted she could say with, quote, 100 percent certainty that a Kelly victory means the state's 1849 abortion ban, quote, will stay on the books. Kelly fired back that she has, quote, no idea what he is thinking about the issues. Despite this being a state race and supposedly a nonpartisan one, ads from both candidates are echoing national, Republican and Democratic politics, with Kelly, for example, accusing Protosewitz of being soft on crime. Sexual assault of an 11-year-old. No prison time. He raped a military veteran, left her for dead just two and a half years. Raped a mentally disabled 14-year-old. Probation. How the heck did this happen? Janet Protasiewicz. If you could go back in time, would you have ruled any differently? I would say no. Really? No time in prison? I would say no. Protasiewicz set violent criminals free. Again and again. Tell Judge Protasiewicz, stop protecting criminals. And remember, this is for a Supreme Court election. While Protosewitz uh, charged that Kelly is a radical right-winger who even opposes Social Security. Wisconsin seniors depend on Social Security, but extremist Dan Kelly doesn't care about them. Kelly wrote that Social Security was similar to slavery. And Kelly insulted seniors by writing that those on Social Security are, quote, people who have chosen to retire without sufficient assets to support themselves. Do you want a radical like that on the Supreme Court? Dan Kelly, an extremist who doesn't care about us. Brutal. And frankly, that's just the tip of the iceberg in this critical contest with early and absentee voting now officially underway in the Badger State as of Tuesday and Election Day for control of the state's high court coming right up on April 4. Joining us now to discuss that key election and the ongoing unprecedented sturm and drang surrounding criminal accountability for our former president is our old friend, progressive champion and Wisconsin favorite son, John Nichols, longtime national affairs correspondent for The Nation and associate editor of Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times. He's also the author and co-author of too many books on progressive politics to mention here, but his latest written with some guy named Bernie Sanders, is titled It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. Well, congrats on the uh, new book, Mr. Nichols. I'm glad Bernie is uh, finally hanging on to your coattails. And welcome back to the <laughs> broadcast, amigo. Well, I, I think the coattails might be reversed. But yeah, well. <laughs> uh, bottom line is it's, it has been very fun uh, to to write with the senator, and we were out, uh, we did a great event in San Jose with about 1,200 folks recently, and then in Tucson with a roughly similar crowd, so there seems to be some interest in this topic. I guess there is. We will, uh, I'll try <laughs> to uh, get in a, a question or two about this as time allows momentarily. We've got a lot to talk about right now, obviously sure. in your home state, uh, where it seems like the state Supreme Court elections have somehow or another been national news 
for years. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll talk about that mm -hmm. momentarily, but uh, we're now officially, of course, on indictment watch. We may be for several months at this point with one indictment after another likely to come. I need to get your thoughts on at least the first case that appears to be coming down. We'll see if it actually does. That's the New York State criminal indictment of Trump related to his $130,000 hush money payoff to porn star Stormy Daniels before the 2016 presidential election. I've heard complaints from some on the left that the case is somehow uh, not big enough or important enough to bring, uh, or at least uh, to bring as the first criminal indictment of a U.S. president in history. I strongly disagree with that argument, but I would love to hear your thoughts on it, John. Well, look, I think if, if somebody's committed a crime, or maybe many crimes, you don't knock one off the list just because there might be a bigger one, mm -hmm. right? I mean, at the end of the day, these these charges against the former president are, are uh, multifold. There's a lot of them, and they're for a lot of different issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll see them come forward. You know, I mean, it's, it's uh, I think... Uh, unreasonable to suggest that uh, you start dropping certain charges or don't worry about these charges because something bigger is coming. The fact of the matter is um, we don't know what's going to come, mm -hmm. right? We don't know what where grand juries are going to come together and where they're not, where the Department of Justice is going to decide to prosecute or is not on particular issues, uh, all these different regional and local venues around the country. So at the end of the day, I think that you know prosecutors have a basic responsibility. They gather their evidence, they go to a grand jury, or they go into their own processes for deciding whether to charge. And if, if they're there, they do it, and they do it on, on their schedule, mm -hmm. not on the schedule of the accused uh, individual. And so I, I think that criticism is a little off. Yeah. Um, by the same token, I will tell you that what we've got here is we're now four or five days, maybe six days, into um, you know, watching for a... a arrest mm -hmm. that Donald Trump said was going to come mm -hmm. that, you know, hasn't come yet, and mm -hmm. that, that may not even come in the form that he suggested, or, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, and, and I think this is, this is a problematic situation, because, you know, there is a point where I think people get an indictment fatigue, if you will, and, and I think that our media uh, situation now, where you see a lot of our, of our uh, particularly the cable channels, you know, it's just sort of 24-7 mm -hmm. reflecting on, you know, well, maybe something will happen tomorrow or maybe something will happen, something like that. And I would suggest that this is one of those places where it might be a good idea to kind of hand it off to the legal reporters, like <laughs> yes. the people who actually cover the courts. You mean not to the say, uh, speculation reporters who are... That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, just guessing. I mean, listen, John, you know, the notion that this is not a, a big enough deal to bring against a president, I mean, arguably, this payoff helped him win... A presidential election back in 2016. And, you know, we've sort of been connecting the dots all week between this uh, this week's 20th anniversary of George W. Bush's invasion of Iraq uh, and the need for accountability for Donald Trump. I don't think you get Donald Trump without a George W. Bush personally, and especially a George W. Yeah. Bush uh, who, uh, against whom there was never accountability caught uh, abroad. Right. You know, so uh, to me... 
I, you know, I don't know if you agree, but to me, it feels like accountability in this case for Donald Trump is important in a much broader scheme beyond just the, you know, the delight of seeing Trump finally face some music for his for his crimes. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I'm I'm in the camp, obviously, because I wrote a book about it and mm-hmm. I've written a lot about this over the years. Mm-hmm. I'm in the camp that thinks, you know, the, the critical error was not to impeach Trump the first time. Mm-hmm. Right. And Trump or Bush. And, and, well, I'm sorry, Trump in this case, okay. of his two. But yes, I'd go back to Bush. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, you want to dig back further, I think they should have seen through the impeachment of Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Uh, because a- as a historian of impeachment, I will tell you this, that when Nixon was allowed to shut down the process and fly off to California, mm-hmm. um, he protected his his ability to sort of uh, renew his reputation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think this is a big deal. I think that we allow our uh, political leaders to get off the hook, mm-hmm. and we get all excited about you know prosecuting somebody who might have been associated with them, or somebody who wasn't even associated with them, but was associated with the trouble they caused. Mm-hmm. And and that's relevant. If you committed a crime, you committed a crime. But we have a real problem in this country with high level accountability. Yep. Right. If you're at the top, and so um, look. If it was left to me, I would be, you know, far more interested in seeing Trump impeached than I, than tried in a court of law. To be mm. quite honest, mm. that's where I'm at. I think that's the the political, the, the appropriate political response to this. But if he committed a crime, then you, you know he doesn't get off the hook, right? You, it's you know yep. nobody's above the law there. So um, I think we've got a lot of conflicting, you know, kind of issues in play here, uh-huh. and. Yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, well, I was going to say, listen, I I think, yeah, if it's a crime, you hold them accountable. And the fact that presidents seem to be above the law, you can draw a straight line from Nixon to Reagan to W to Trump, as far as I see it, you know. And, um, you know, you've even got Roger Stone, who was there the whole time for the ride, right? (laughs) For all of them. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in the meantime, I don't want to dwell on this. I want to get to Wisconsin. But it does seem, uh, speaking of, you know, con- uh, conflicting thoughts here. It seems like about half of Republicans from Fox News to Jim Jordan to Trump himself complain that this indictment uh, will be nothing more than an attempt by Democrats to hurt him in 2024 in the presidential race. But then you got another group of Republicans from Marjorie Taylor Greene to, yes, Trump himself, who argue that an indictment of Trump is going to ensure that he wins back the presidency in 2024. Well, so which one is it? Is it going to help or, or hurt Trump ultimately? I got news for you. Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene are wrong. Okay. Getting indicted is a bad thing. Yep. And it's a uh, more of a burden, I think, than, than I think uh, either of them, or frankly a lot of pundits recognize. Um, if, if you are you know, facing an indictment, or if you are in fact indicted, uh, it's something that that your own supporters—not your most fervent and you know feverish supporters—but mm-hmm. the broad group of people that might support you mm-hmm. take into the mix, right? Yeah. And they think, you know, if they if you're a really committed right-wing Republican and you really want to retake the presidency of the United States, do you choose the candidate who is under indictment and facing a lot of problems? Um, or do you choose somebody who, you know, says a lot of the same stuff, but is is not, you know, mm-hmm. being you know facing multiple court dates, mm-hmm. and and so I do think that that it is it is bad for Trump 
uh, and all of this is bad for Trump. But that doesn't necessarily deny him the Republican nomination, Mm -hmm. because he does have a very fervent set of backers. And so um, you end up in a situation where, theoretically, I think it's reasonably possible from a political standpoint, that Donald Trump is helped somewhat in getting the Republican nomination Mm -hmm. in 2024 by all these you know, legal challenges that he faces because of this sort of persecution complex that a lot of a lot of our Republican friends have. By the same token, I think he is severely harmed as regards to the November race mm-hmm. because you have a, a dwindling of enthusiasm, potentially perhaps also a dwindling of uh, support from right-wing or conservative-leaning independents and even some Republicans. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I think there's a you know we could we could do a whole show on analyzing how this plays out. Uh, the fact of the matter is, if he is indicted, um, he's got a right to run. Mm-hmm. He can he can still run for the office, but boy, he brings all of that into the presidential race at a time when it's very possible the American people would rather be talking about you know the economy, education, healthcare, mm-hmm. you know, well, issues that actually affect him. I suspect we will have time to uh, discuss that and what it all means as it all moves forward. Uh, So let's uh, move to the more immediate moment, at least in uh, electoral politics. And, And, you know, John Nichols, it's kind of incredible. Uh, You know, despite running a national blog and radio show, I realized recently I've been uh, covering Wisconsin Supreme Court elections for (laughs) well over a decade at this point. I don't know how you I'm going to blame you for tricking me into it. But in this race, uh, apparently it's important enough that none other than Barack Obama tweeted out on Tuesday, quote, today is the first day of early voting in the Wisconsin Supreme Court election. It's going to be closed. Don't wait until April 4. Make a plan to vote. Encourage your family and friends to do the same. Uh, and at The Nation this month, you characterize this race between liberal Milwaukee County Circuit Judge Janet Protasewicz and Republican former state Supreme Court Justice Dan Kelly as, quote, the most important election of the year. Why is that the case as you see it, John? Sure. Well, I'm a Wisconsinite, so I have to think my election's most important. Of course, right? of course. Yes. Um, but, but beyond that, mm-hmm. beyond that, and, and just to highlight something you were saying a moment ago, you and I... You and I have been talking about Wisconsin Supreme Court races at least since 2008. Yep. To understand that, I remember being on uh, or talking with you about the 2008 race in Wisconsin. That was a brutal battle uh, in which uh, Michael Gableman, who Mm -hmm. went on to become the, you know, he's been more recently controversial because he's a former Supreme Court justice now, Mm -hmm. uh, but he went on to become, you know, kind of Trump's guy in Wisconsin. Right yep. on, on investigating the 2020 election and stuff like that. Um, he won that election with a, a, a really ugly racist campaign against the sitting Justice Lewis Butler. And in many ways, that set in play a, uh, a pattern that, that we saw for quite a while. Um, conservatives won a number of key races for the Wisconsin Supreme Court. They got control of the court. When Scott Walker, the former uh, anti-labor governor of Wisconsin, came to power mm-hmm. and did a number of things that were, you know, outside the the boundaries of you know state statutes and laws, the court backed him up, yep. right? Yep. And so this Wisconsin Supreme Court did not merely, you know, judge cases one way or the other. It wasn't just a conservative court. This is a court that really 
advanced a partisan agenda. Mm-hmm. And that took on national character, obviously, when Walker's anti-labor stuff went national. And it has continued to be a real factor. In fact, this court, to a greater extent, probably um, than any other in the United States, has been politicized. Yeah. It is a hyper-partisan, Republican-leaning majority on that court. Mm-hmm. Now, why does that matter? Well, in Wisconsin, we are a deeply divided state. We're, we're pretty much a 50-50 state. Four of our last six presidential elections in Wisconsin were decided by under 25,000 votes. Yep. So as a result, a lot of issues go into the courts. And this current conservative majority court has drawn the maps for our state legislature. It's also drawn the maps for our congressional districts. And understand that, just to take this up to the national level now. Yep. The House of Representatives is very narrowly divided. Mm-hmm. You Republicans got an advantage in at least two seats from Wisconsin yep. by the gerrymandering that this court did. Additionally, um, there but for one vote on this court, um, you had you know challenges to the 2020 election that came into play. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy who is running, this Dan Kelly who's running, uh, who w- literally worked for the Republican Party, during that period where they were trying to upend the 2020 election results, would, if he goes on to the court, be that one vote um, who potentially in 2024 could, if it was a very close election, again, we have these patterns of very close elections, um, be a a very dangerous player as regards not just Wisconsin politics, but national politics. So when we put all this together, it, it makes this, for a variety of reasons, an incredibly important case and then throw on two other quick, and I'll do it very quickly, mm-hmm. uh, two other very important things. One, Wisconsin has an 1849 abortion law mm-hmm. that um, Republicans want to reanimate. This mm-hmm. court could do that mm-hmm. and um, really criminalize abortion uh, and reproductive rights at a way that would you know, cause people's jaws to drop in Kansas. Um, and then also, Wisconsin has the legacy of those anti-labor laws that Walker put in, Yep. which frequently come to the courts. And so bottom line is, if you end up with a 4-3 liberal majority on this court that actually looks at cases from a fair and reasonable way, um, you've got a chance to undo gerrymandering, to make sure that voting rights are protected and elections are fair, uh, to protect a woman's right to choose, and perhaps to protect the rights of working people to collectively bargain. Oh, that's all. That's small, a pretty big package. Small stakes, yeah, yeah right. Uh, you know, yeah. I've, I've long warned, John, that uh, Wisconsin has sort of been the Petri dish for American undemocracy. Uh, I've warned that, you know, at, at both the, the state legislative level there, we've seen what happened in the state legislature sort of spread to other uh, states. Uh, also, at your Supreme Court, we've sort of seen that spread to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's, it's just one of the reasons I've always been, uh, you know, paying attention for so many years to what's going on in Wisconsin. John, tell me, why is uh, Dan Kelly, why is he a former Supreme Court Justice, and, and and why is he now running once again for that position? Well, you get to be former when uh, people decide they don't want you there. Hmm. And um, so Dan Kelly is he's an interesting guy. He's not from Wisconsin. He moved to Wisconsin mm-hmm. uh, after he finished at Regent Law School. And uh, he, he has been, an, uh, for all of his career, a conservative... Uh, legal activist, mm-hmm. uh, representing a conservative foundation, representing conservative clients. He was a pretty good lawyer. Give him his due. 
Um, he's won some cases that, that are of consequence along the way. He actually defended the gerrymandering mm-hmm. back in, in 2011, very, very close to Scott Walker, and Scott Walker appointed him to the Supreme Court mm-hmm. right around the time Scott Walker was losing his presidential bid. And so Kelly served on the court, but, but then he came to a point where he had to run for a full 10-year term. He did that in 2020, mm-hmm. and he did it with all the advantages of incumbency, and the voters of Wisconsin voted him out by over 150,000 votes, roughly a 10-point margin. So he got beat real bad yep. the last time he ran. J- just two years ago, and yet they decided to put him back up. The uh, uh, Protosewitz campaign has repeatedly described him as radical and extremist, and now I realize politics ain't beanbag, and Wisconsin <laughs> politics in particular ain't beanbag. But is her characterization of this uh, now former state Supreme Court justice, is it accurate and or fair as you see it? Yeah, you look, Kelly has, and, and I don't know whether, you know, where we draw our line on saying radical or extremist or, you know, hyper-partisan or what term you want to use, but the, the bottom line is that, that Dan Kelly has literally been in the employ of right-wing groups, conservative clients, the Republican Party, um, for decades. And, yeah. and when he lost his Supreme Court race in 2020... As soon as he left the court, he immediately went to work for the Republican Party. Right. Not just the state Republican Party, but the national. And was very, very involved um, with all that, you know, battling over the 2020 election. Now, if you think that, that Trump's efforts to overturn that election were, you know, reasonable, um, then, you know, maybe Kelly's a reasonable guy. <laughs> right. I mean, you, you define it how you want to define it. Right. But here's the bottom line, and this is something of the debate that you were talking about in the intro. It's a fascinating thing. In the debate, Janet Protosiewicz, the judge from Milwaukee, mm-hmm. and by the way, this is actually, you know, judged cases, um, not, as a, not at the Supreme Court level, but at the, at the you know, local court level, and actually done, frankly, a lot more uh, work as a prosecutor and a judge than Kelly has. But um, she said, you know, in this thing, that, you know, Kelly was involved in this fake elector scheme mm-hmm. and in all these other things associated with the, the efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Um, and Kelly came back and said, oh, you're a liar, right? And then he said, I really, I only spent a half hour talking I know, to people that's, about that's, Is that a defense? Right, uh, that's, what I, what I read, that's why I wanted to read that, because it's like, I will only talk to the guy for 30 minutes, that's all the head of the Republican Party. You know, one of the things that Kelly has uh, attacked Protosewitz on is that, oh, you know, she talks about her politics all the time. He sort of pretends that he doesn't want to talk about cases that may come before him if he's on the court. But his position on all of those things are, are is clear. He has represented all of those groups. He yeah. has worked for the Republican Party. Now, there's one point, you know, for example, he says Kelly uh, has, has attempted to tag a uh, say, says soft on crime and protecting yep. violent criminals. Yep. I, is that fair? And, and how is she responding to those charges? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, this is that's a common in every judicial race mm-hmm. ever in, okay. in Wisconsin. I mean, yeah. that's now the official line is that, you know, both candidates will always attack each other as being soft on crime. Mm-hmm. And Protosewitz has attacked Kelly for, you know, some, some pretty controversial clients that Kelly's had, mm-hmm. um, and vice versa. Here's the bottom line. Protosewitz was a trial court judge. Um, she is the opposite of Kelly. Kelly's a politician who got appointed to the Supreme Court. You know, he's never sent anybody to jail, mm-hmm. right? He's only, you know, interpreted cases. Mm-hmm. 
whereas per se it's dealt with thousands of cases. Mm-hmm. Now, in those thousands of cases, which uh, is a, we understand that the uh, uh, conservative analysts and Republicans have, have pulled all those cases, and they looked through them all, did they find a few where she had a sentence that appears to have been light, right? It mm-hmm. looks to have been a, a light sentence. Yes, they did, and they're highlighting those, but they've got, you know, two or three of them, right? Mm-hmm. And what Persewitz says is every case is complicated, right? There are, there are all sorts of mitigating factors, right. and if you want to dig into a particular case, you're going to find things that may argue for a lesser sentence or may not. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not going to tell you that Persewitz in thousands of cases got everyone right. And I, I, I think even she, although she defends, you know, how she handled it, even she would say, you know, there's always complexity. Mm-hmm. Here. But I, I think that the notion that she was a, quote-unquote, soft-on-crime judge, which is certainly the, the big push that the Republicans are making, that was not her reputation in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Her reputation was as a pretty mainstream, pretty responsible judge. Wow. And so I think it's the, it's the standard kind of smear that you do when you're trying to, um, you know, create a create an image, portray some sort of theory. And but the one final thing I'll say about it that's interesting is that I think that a lot of the advertising that's attacking Protosavits, mm-hmm. not in the debate, but in the actual advertising, mm-hmm. I, I've been struck by the fact that the the Republicans and the conservatives seem to increasingly be using their own language, like they're referring to Protosavits as a woke judge. Right. 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 The problem with that is that, you know, we have polling recently that says the term woke is not a particularly unpopular term. Right. And we also know that, you know, I think for most people that's just not, you know, it's, that's not construct that they get. And so I, I think that, that the Kelly folks and Kelly's backers seem to be talking to themselves a lot mm-hmm. and trying to generate a lot of energy among themselves, whereas Protosawitz's campaign, I think, at least in following it so far, seems to have been a much more kind of broad stroke. And she, and and she does seem to be. There's not a, a lot of polling to go on here, but based on the uh, primary election, it seems to be that she is doing much better with independents uh, in the bargain. Uh, John, I've got just a few uh, minutes here, so I'm going to want to fly through two or three questions that are completely sure. unfair to ask you to okay. respond to quickly, but I'll ask you to do it anyway. Uh, your your state's Supreme Court races are supposed to be nonpartisan, incredibly enough. That certainly hasn't seemed to be the case in the time that I've been covering them. Does it make sense to even describe them as nonpartisan anymore, John? Well, um, you know, from a statutory standpoint, yes, because these candidates appear on the ballot without the name of party next to them, mm, right? Yeah. They don't, they're not running on a ballot line. Uh-huh. Just, the two names will be there. And so it, it fits the basic model of nonpartisan, right, as regards to look at the ballot. From a reality standpoint, it's pretty absurd, right? Yeah. It's, and, and, and this goes back decades now in Wisconsin. Most people will know who they're voting for and why they're voting for them. Yeah. And it's going to be a clearly, yeah, it, it's, it's going to be a choice based on, on ideology and to some extent partisanship. Which takes me to another point that you and I may have discussed before, and I can't remember, we may even disagree on this, but uh, you know, I think the idea of electing judges or justices in this case, you know, that makes them beholden, I think, to, to partisan politics. And they, you know, they have to appeal to voters rather than to the rule of law. 
I think that's a terrible idea personally, not good for the rule of law. And, you know, especially if you look at a race like this with all of this money from all sides, Mm -hmm. it seems like a fact that, you know, whoever wins is going to be either beholden to a bunch of folks that, you know, brung them to the dance or at least appear to be beholden to them. I think this is elections for judges is not good for the rule of law. Am I wrong about that? You might be. Uh, Well, no. I would say the elections for judges in the way that they're currently done mm-hmm. is not good for the rule of law, mm-hmm. right? It's, it can't be because of our inability and our failure to reform our campaign finance laws. So, you know, that's, that's, a, that's something to discuss at great length. But my counter to that as somebody who is sympathetic with the idea of electing judges is we have an unelected U.S. Supreme Court. And it, it hasn't really acquitted itself all that well <laughs> of late. Correct. Uh, so I guess, uh, you know, judges are going to be chosen one way or another. It's uh, historically been the view, especially, you know, we have 37 states that either elect judges or have judicial retention elections. Generally, the view is if somebody can, you know, send you to court or, or send you to jail or keep you in jail or something like that, um, you ought to have some, you know, popular ability to check and balance them. And that, that you know, tends to be through elections. Mm. Um, so I tend to lean a little more. We may actually disagree on this one, mm-hmm. but I don't think we would disagree on the fact that what judicial elections have become in America is a disaster. Yeah, because they um, they are influenced massively by uh, often out of state money. Right, and that's one of the quickly I'll say in Wisconsin. That's one of the big deals in Wisconsin. These candidates aren't raising all their money in Wisconsin. This right. is coming from all over the country. I, I, you know, I've long said uh, if you can't vote for a particular candidate for any race, you should not be able to donate to them. Which means, by the way, corporate yeah. money. Corporate money is gone from politics because corporations don't have a vote. So, uh, you know, that that would help get us there. Uh, it would get us a lot closer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, listen, I, I know you're uh, not in the prediction business, but I've... Uh, gotten my hopes up time after time for these Wisconsin Supreme Court contests only to see them dash dashed mm-hmm. am, am I headed to disappointment on April 4 John or, or does uh, Protosawitz have a, a real shot here yeah I don't think you're headed to disappointment I, I think it's going to be a closer race than the primary Protosawitz just ran away with it in the primary she almost got 50 percent um, I think this will be closer uh, because in Wisconsin conservatives tend to close well in in big big profile races. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the gap will narrow. Uh, but my sense is that Protosawitz has, at least to this point, we still got roughly two weeks to go, at least to this point, she has run a statewide campaign that puts a lot of emphasis in the right places. I know we're talking about all the money, but at the end of the day, there's a question of where candidates go and what they do. She's from Milwaukee, mm-hmm. and she has a lot of support in Madison. These mm-hmm. are the places mm-hmm. where, you know, Democrats, progressives, you know, tend to do well. Yeah, um, she spent an immense amount of time out in rural northern Wisconsin and western Wisconsin. Hmm. She's an incredibly hardworking candidate, uh, and this is this is uh, not to be underestimated in a judicial race. She's energetic, hardworking, going to the places she needs to go, and she has um, a style, frankly, that is very Wisconsin. Yes, it, it yes. comes off very well. Uh, you, to your immense credit, have learned to pronounce her name. Uh, yes, uh, was not easy. She she did put out a great video to help us there, uh, but, but uh, I will just emphasize yeah. that that 
in Wisconsin, people do know how to pronounce that name. <laughs> okay. You know, there's a lot of parts of Wisconsin that have a large Polish population, uh-huh. uh, have a lot of ethnic population. And so for a variety of reasons, I do think that she has the advantage in this race, but I would not for a second suggest that you should get casual about it because, um, as I said, we are a very closely divided state. Before we go, John Nichols, uh, quickly uh, and also unfair, tell me about your new book with Bernie Sanders titled It's Okay to Be <laughs> Angry About Capitalism in 30 seconds or so. Why should I read it, John? Well, it makes a fine holiday gift. There you go. Um, but, uh, no, it's look, what we set out to do, and we worked a couple years on this, uh, what we set out to do was to kind of crack contemporary politics, to try and offer a different way of looking at it. So much of our politics is about blaming somebody or blaming some group of people uh, or blaming, you know, just trying to say that, that the immigrant, the refugee, the labor union member, somebody's the bad player, right? Mm-hmm. What we argue is that, that this is a warped way to look at our politics. We live in a country where, an immensely wealthy country, where our power is concentrated among a billionaire class and among corporate corporate entities. And if we want to have a realistic discussion about all of our problems, we've got to stop blaming our neighbor, stop blaming somebody who lives down the street, and start looking at where the real problems are, where the real power is, and that's with our billionaire class and our corporations. And what we suggest is, you know, simple things, like we could tax them a whole lot more. Mm. And if we did, we'd be able to have a lot more nice stuff. There's an idea. Uh, John Nichols is the uh, author, along with some guy named Bernie Sanders, of It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. Yes, a great holiday gift, even if that holiday is, I don't know, Easter. You can find uh, John Nichols every day at thenation.com, amongst elsewhere. You can also find him on the Twitters at Nichols Uprising. John, uh, keep your April 5 open for us. We may be calling whether there's good news or bad news on that Wednesday following the April 4 election in Wisconsin. Good luck, brother. Good luck to you. Thanks for a good conversation. Thank you, sir. Okay, we have got to get out. Yes, we're running late. Oh, for a change? <laughs> that, uh, thanks to our producer, Desi Doyne, and all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free or just listen again at bradblog.com. Hey, while you're there, please do consider hitting one of those donate buttons to help uh, keep Desi and I on your public airwaves. Reporting on these important stories, because someone's got to. You can also drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, you will find me at the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com/donate.